You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 9th of January, 2020, on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Daniel Bache. Coming up today... People have been told everything that they can be told now about Brexit. We have to see the reality of it before they'll actually make up their minds. Brexit rolls on. My guests, Vincent McAvenny and Joy Ladika, will discuss that and the day's other news, including Iran. What will the future look like with the U.S. and the EU seemingly on different trajectories over how to defuse tensions in the Middle East? And why the U.K.'s royal family are facing upheaval like never before. Plus, their forest green rubber-gloved hands gripped trowels and cicatures. It was one of the most covetable collections we've seen so far this menswear season. We visit the Pitti Omo menswear event. I'm Daniel Bates. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined by Vincent McAvenny, UK correspondent for Euronews, and by Joy Ladico, journalist, broadcaster, and regular Monocle 24 contributor. Welcome both to the show. We begin here in the UK, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson's proposed Brexit withdrawal agreement bill is making its way through Parliament. It has faced some opposition amendments regarding citizens' rights, but all were defeated by the Conservatives' commanding majority in the House of Commons. When it reaches the House of Lords for further scrutiny, it might not be such easy sailing. Vincent, Theresa May faced historic defeats on this. Why is Johnson not being held to account in the same way? Well, I was in the House of Commons yesterday for Prime Minister's Question Time, and I thought it was interesting. Theresa May has now taken up Ken Clark, who was the father of the House, mm. uh, the sort of arch-Europhile uh, Conservative MP's seat, which is kind of three rows back just to the left behind the Prime Minister. And she was looking there. And it's really interesting to watch her because she is watching a year on from her trying to do this exact same thing. Uh, it's sailing through the House of Commons, the ERG brought into check. And it is because Boris Johnson won that whopping majority. Mm. Uh, And, you know, she will wonder this herself simply, you know, Boris's deal is just pretty close, you know, 95% close to what she had. In fact, hers was better in some ways if you wanted to protect the integrity of the United Kingdom going down the line. But Boris's is just sailing through. Uh, It is going to the House of Lords. They might have a little bit more of an obstacle there. They do have a majority, but some of their peers uh, are more Europhile. And there is questions as well about the amendment that was voted down about reunification of child refugees. Alf Dubbs, who himself was saved in a kinder transport, might mount quite a strong campaign about that in the House of Lords. Uh, Joy, some of the opposition yesterday was symbolic, some of it uh, Mm. quite real. In the House of Lords, what do we expect? Well, I think the House of Lords understands its job as a constitutional job and therefore it will be raising certain amendments. They they do know that almost everything they're, they're going to put forward is, is inevitably going to, to be defeated. But in a sense, what they're going to put down is going to be for the record down the line. So if something ends up in any form of judicial review, the Supreme Court again, or just even with the historians, uh, what they've objected to may indeed come back all over again. Um, I think the... There is a Remain majority in the House of Lords, just by inclination, by history, by the fact that there are a lot of Liberal Democrats. Um, as I understand it, Labour, who have traditionally 
been anti-Brexit in the Lords, I think are probably going to fold um, in the coming weeks. So you won't see kind of majority votes on lots mm. of things, but there will be a few issues that they will stand up for. And the other thing that comes into play is under the Salisbury Convention, anything that is in a manifesto at an election yeah. has to be approved by the House of Lords. So because the withdrawal agreement was in the Conservative manifesto, they do now have a kind of binding commitment mm. to put it through. Yeah. And there is, of course, at all times with the House of Lords, self-preservation will be a key thing because, you know, Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson have plans. They have a decade to try and reform the way Britain works. And I think if you said to many people on the street, our democracy still has a hereditary element in its second chamber and many of the other peers are appointed on whims, you know, people would not be happy with it. So it is in the firing line potentially for the government if it steps out of line. I mean, this is not, this is, what has happened has not been a kind of regular defeat, a regular kind of pendulum swing in politics. The opposition are cowed at the moment because Mm. I think they do fear that Cummings and co are going to make such substantial changes that anybody who puts their head above the parapet is going to get shot down. But I do think this this idea of a constitutional duty will stay in the Lords and that is what they're employed to do. That is what any regular speaker there will say, actually, it was my job to do this even if I was going to lose. And so with a heavy heart, they go mm. in knowing they're going to face another defeat but also knowing that they're doing the right thing. And there's a great cover of the New European as well, which is what does Remain become? Does it become resist? Does it become rejoin? Does it become replace? Does it what you know? Everyone is now thinking, well, the next decade, perhaps, you know, it's a little bit like you know, you have to wait. And people have been told everything that they can be told now about Brexit. We have to see the reality of it before they'll actually make up their minds. I think, I mean, it's a 20 year game now, Mm. and um, I've been going around town irritating uh, Remainers by saying we've been vanquished. It's the most delightful experience in a way. We can now relax. We don't actually have to do a great deal other than those people who are in Parliament who do have a a duty to do various things. The rest of us should just sit down, reflect and work out the fact that Mm. we've actually got a 20 year strategy ahead of us to go forwards to the next round. And that's all that can really be done at this point in time. You mentioned the word reality there, uh, Vincent. Ursula von der Leyen was in town yesterday uh, reminding many UK voters uh, they'll be, you know, what they'll be losing after leaving the UK, UK uh, or the EU, I should say. Uh, what was the sense of division really uh, going into discussions? And, and what, what do we make of her timing of being in town? Yeah, I thought she conducted herself quite well yesterday. It was an interesting speech that she made at the LSE where she herself was a student in the 1970s. She obviously, you know, she portrayed herself as an Anglophile, talked about, you know, having spent more time in the bars of Soho and the record stores of Camden than the university library. This was someone who sincerely likes the UK mm. uh, and gave a speech in which she's, you know, she set things out clearly. She says, you know, doing a deal in this amount of time is going to be impossible in her words, but the UK and EU will be close friends, getting that full kind of scope that Boris Johnson says that he wants of all the areas encompassed is going to be hard. And she was setting expectations, saying it might just be a much tighter uh, and leaner deal. And then there will be additional deals going on. She is trying to kind of call effectively Boris Johnson's bluff, because what he has done on paper is said, I'll get a deal by the end of the year. And yet it could be any kind of deal. And he scrapped the additional year or two that Theresa May had on this transition year. But he knows that he can just he needs to just get one deal over the line that stops the worst of the no deal implications Mm. or going to tariffs with WTO and then you can do subsequent deals after that. But the interesting thing which I think no one is quite clocked is that he actually has to do the deal with the United States first because Boris Johnson will not want to risk having to do a deal with a democratic president. If one won 
It would not be their top priority. Mm. They'd want very different things. Donald Trump wants it so he can go into the election because he might not get done one sorted with China, but he can point to a new one with Britain. And so that one is actually the one that they might need to prioritize over the next few months. Everyone talks about Canada, Singapore as the easy ones, but would we go straight to the US? Joy, what do you think? Um, would we go straight to the <laughs> <Yeah>. US? <clears throat> um, I, um, it, it would seem to be that the back channels there, obviously, their trade deals are uh, essentially a kind of a dinosaur playing with mm. a kind of little bird. You know, you know we, we are going to be in trouble, whatever that happens. But providing Johnson is still on this kind of wave of success, he can pitch almost any deal as a kind of a, a great saviour for Britain. It's going to be fantastic. Everything's going to be wonderful. At the moment, that messaging is so strong that if he can get it done very quickly, or at least the kind of headline of a deal done very quickly... Mm good stuff. But you're, you're actually right. And I keep thinking about that, which is, you know, Elizabeth Warren is really not going to be that interested in saving Britain's ass at this point in time. Joe Ledico and Vincent McAvenny will be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Ben Rylan with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Daniel. Washington says it's ready to enter into serious negotiations with Iran. It follows a dramatic exchange of hostilities with Tehran firing missiles at U.S. forces in Iraq, which was in response to the assassination of the top Iranian military commander by the U.S. Both nations have justified their use of force. We'll be hearing more on this in just a moment here on Monocle's House View. The Australian state of Victoria has declared a state of emergency ahead of worsening bushfire conditions. Huge parts of the country have been devastated by fires, and Australian media reports that text messages are being sent out to people in affected areas, urging them to leave if they are able to. And Taiwan's government has warned Beijing that it should not read too much into the outcome of this weekend's elections. President Tsai Ing-wen, who is seeking another term in office, has repeatedly warned voters that the poll runs the risk of being undermined by Chinese meddling. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Daniel. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Daniel Bache, here with Joy Ladiko and Vincent McAvenny. We move on now to Iran. The recent military attacks between the U.S. and its Middle East rival have dominated the headlines in recent days. But what lies ahead? Well, the U.S. and its partners in the EU might not be able to agree on what that future looks like. This with Donald Trump's administration set on obliterating progress made through dialogue with Iran in recent years. But many European allies are still voicing support for the Iran nuclear deal designed to prevent escalation and the creation of prohibited weapons by Iran. Joy, Iran has said those limits meant to last some 15 years are already over, and Trump yesterday basically declared the nuclear deal dead. So why are EU leaders holding out on this? I don't know what they can actually salvage at this Mm. point in time. Uh, In terms of this particular cycle of aggression going on between the US and Iran, it was largely brought on by Donald Trump being the man who knows what a good deal is, the man who knows what a bad deal is. And so by pulling out, so if you have to look back as to why this situation has arisen at this point in time, you could pretty much firmly nail it on Donald Trump mm. wanting to uh, set out his stall. Um, interestingly, the, the, you know, the European... Uh, Boris Johnson is in a particularly tricky position at this point in time. He, um, when he was foreign secretary, essentially was the European Union's... Um, 
uh, ambassador for that for their wanting to retain the deal and he went over i think i'm going to say it was about february 2018 and tried to persuade trump not to withdraw mm. from it he writes a big article in the new york times um explaining what why that was a position it was a position he reiterated again in uh one of the leadership hustings uh for the sun and so uh, his statement when he did put it out was actually relatively neutral, but I wonder whether he ends up having to be a broker mm. hilariously at the point at which we're trying to do Brexit with the European Union and trying to get the whole thing to de-escalate, which is a word he keeps on using, he yeah. was using two years ago. Uh, what can they salvage? I don't know. I mean, in a sense, they're almost mm. accidental players in this. Uh, Vincent, partners in the 2015 deal, including uh, EU nations, Russia and China, likely feel uh, it was Trump's decision to pull out of the deal uh, that led to this current crisis. So, so how then do they move forward with trying to work with the Americans? Well, you have to look at Trump's psyche and what he wants. A big part of his reasons for running was when Barack Obama mocked him at the White House Correspondents' Dinner with his real long-form birth certificate. Mm. And really, you know, the camera cut to him and you can see Trump's face, you know, there is that rage building inside. And so, so much of what he's done as presidency, as we know, is tearing down the legacy of Obama. And if we look at like, the later stages of Donald Trump's career... It was all about licensing. The buildings that were being built as Trump Towers were just licensing deals. The products that he was hawking were licensing deals. If you asked him how could the JCPOA be improved, he would probably not have the first clue how to change it, about the inspections, about the levels that you needed to enrich uranium, any of that. All he wants is to relicense it as Trump's Iran deal. You know, he doesn't want it to be called the JCPOA. He wants it to be called, you know, the Mar-a-Lago Accord or something like that, because he just wants to beat Barack Obama. And that is his, you know, that was his signature legacy when it came to foreign affairs. And so that is all he really wants. He doesn't know what he wants out of a new deal. And the struggle now for, you know, for European leaders and, you know, Boris Johnson, if we go back to our last conversation, was he has to play this between the two countries he is trying to do a deal with. He knows overall security in the Middle East is the most important thing, but he still needs to do a deal with Europe and do a deal with America. And so it was interesting that he's been delegating this down to the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary to keep himself slightly clean and removed from it. Mm. He couldn't avoid it yesterday because there was Prime Minister's questions and he did get asked by it repeatedly by Jeremy Corbyn. But, you know, it's interesting that the Foreign Secretary was first dispatched to Europe and then has now gone to North America. Was it was in Washington yesterday, because they're trying to say to the European side, we're not a lapdog for America, you know, we still want to work with you. And then they've gone to the US and probably something that wouldn't have been as much picked up on in the signals there. But, you know, Britain was totally caught off guard by this, that we have troops, civilians and diplomats in this country. We have done since 2003 in Iran. We weren't warned about it. The prime minister didn't rush back from his holidays, something he's previously done with the London riots. It's a bad habit that he has. Mm. Uh, and then was nowhere to be seen. And it does make it look like Britain is not being kept well informed by the United States. And if Europe is going to believe that we're a trusted intermediary, well, we need to be seen to have the trust of the United States as well to be told these things in advance. But it's also greatly to his advantage that he wasn't told because there's a question mm. of international law here. And because he didn't have to sign it off in advance, he is, uh, he's got clean hands on that one. Mm. A slow response from number 10 and calls from EU leaders now for Iran and Washington to turn back to diplomacy. But uh, is this now about wait, waiting and seeing what happens? Obviously, the, the rhetoric has been dialed back from both sides. Mm. But uh, what do EU leaders uh, make of this? Are they waiting to see what happens next? Well, I mean, we get the interesting question of Iran and which direction it wishes to push it, push in. And it is... 
you know, you've got to remember, Iran is a country with 5,000 years of history. You know, the US is a country with 200 years of history. Iran really does take the long view on this. It uh, has was, you know, contained, in a sense, by that Obama uh, deal. I'm just saying it's the Obama deal, just in a sense to irritate Trump at this point in time. <laughs> they will then also be taking a kind of long view of which of the way they want to go next. What does the EU do in response? Um, you know, it has to just maintain that kind of diplomatic channel in the middle. Um, the other thing you've got to think about is the, the lack of condemnation, of outright condemnation of Trump is actually quite surprising. If Putin had taken out the French chief of defence, there would be absolute uproar and condemnation. In fact, what's happened is a kind of moment of silence because neither nobody actually wants to take sides because nobody actually wants this war to happen. Hmm. Yeah, it was you know it was a Franz Ferdinand moment of like, well, is this it? You know, yeah. World War Three is trending. But what what is interesting? Yeah, they've all called for a de-escalation. This is the end of the overt conflict. Uh, you know, there's reports today that Iran kind of, you know, the US could detect these missiles. There had been a warning. Iran actually targeted, you know, not where troops were. It was storehouses, basically, on, on this base. But now it is, you know, and they've told their outriders, like, you know, the Houthis and all those others that, um, you know, to, to not do anything. They will be reformulating. And I think we could see things like, you know, more kind of subterfuge, things like cyber attacks and that kind of thing mm. going forward now. But the overt stage has been stepped away from that we could go into a full conflict. And, you know, America, it's, you know, it's spending $2 trillion on its defense budget at the moment. Its entire military budget is multiple times what the whole mm. GDP of Iran is. You know, it would be, it would be over so quickly. They know that they, you know, and it is l lucky that this has been de-escalated. Mm. Uh, hopefully, uh, we are in a continued period of de-escalation, but let's uh, move along uh, finally to talk about the Royal, something we don't normally do, but uh, you can't avoid it today. Uh, the UK's Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have announced plans, uh, much to the nation's surprise and the Royal surprise, to attempt to do just that, to live everyday life. After spending six weeks in Canada away from their Royal duties, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex say they're stepping back altogether and plan to become more self-sufficient splitting time between the UK and North America, perhaps in Toronto, where Meghan lived for many years while filming Suits. Uh, Joy, a huge PR blow for the Royals. What do you think? Uh, well, it wasn't a huge PR blow, a blow until the Royals re revealed that they actually didn't know anything about mm. it. I mean, in my own life, when I want to do something that my mother is going to deeply disapprove of, I do it as a fait accompli and go and tell her because otherwise it's never going to happen. And I think they've basically done the same to mm. their father, to Prince Harry's father, Prince Charles and the Queen. Um, I imagine what was going on was there were they were clearly expressing their unhappiness about various things and they kept being overridden, their decisions kept being overridden, they had no autonomy mm. within the family. And what is most significant is they've said we want to live a uh, financially independent life. What they're basically saying is we don't want that. It's actually a relatively small slither of money from the sovereign grant that binds them into the Royal Rota, the, which is where various news reporters get, get to turn up and ask them questions and various duties that they're meant to perform in return for it. They've just said, well, actually, we can do this. We can actually be mm. royal without being part of this particular system. Um, and we can make our money elsewhere and we can support the royal family from a distance. We just don't want to do this anymore. So they've talked about uh, re-upping uh, their charitable status and doing more there. Uh, you know, Prince Harry has a good chunk of change. He's got a great bank account. So wouldn't he want to move to Toronto? Wouldn't you, Vincent? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it, I mean, this is the biggest crisis the royal family has faced 
maybe since the abdication crisis. You know, mm. it's being talked about as, you know, this is Anna's Horriblest 2, and it definitely is Horriblest Harder because this is the big finish that this year needed. You mm. know, the fact that it undermines the whole basis of the royal family, that they're born, that we provide for them somewhat, that they serve, and that they can't step away. It's meant to be a lifelong appointment. And in the past two months, you've had a prince be sacked and a prince quit. Um, And, you know, for Prince Harry, it's a very difficult line. There is no path that he can follow on this. You could end up in 20 years' time like Fergie flogging, you know, juices on QVC. That is, you know, that is the nightmare vision of how this works out. And the question about how they, you know, these financial means. Well, there are members of the royal family. You know, Zara Phillips, uh, who is Princess Anne's daughter, uh, was never a HRH because of the way that primogenitor worked. Anne was well down the line and it didn't pass on to her. But she still does some royal duties, but she's been able to have an independent life in the way that mm. Princess Eugenie and Beatrice haven't had. She's been able to compete as an Olympian. She's a brand ambassador comically for Land Rover, despite yesterday being disqualified for driving for six months because of speeding. So the question is, you know, Prince Harry and Meghan, there are so many pitfalls with doing any kind of endorsements or brand alliances or, you know, kind of kind of guidance to, to bodies or to, or to governments or things like that. What do they do that isn't going to cause them problems? Mm. You know, moving to Canada, as it seems they want to do, you know, financially independent doesn't mean that Meghan will go back to acting. There is no, there are so many questions here. And I think that is what the palace last night, in, you know, in a decade of getting palace communications, I've never seen one like the response from Buckingham Palace. Mm. You know, it's just saying discussions are ongoing and these are complicated matters. That's basically a parent saying to a child like, bide your time you know this is you know be patient this is something that maybe they've rushed into can i sorry just to bring this back to an earlier point of discussion this is a kind of form of brexit what's going on and it's being dubbed mexit um but it is about this idea that you've got these kind of overbearing institutions that Mm. will not allow you to operate in the way that you wish to operate um it is also i think to many millennials an experience they feel whenever they go near a corporation and get given a set of rules and they say well there actually there are other ways to live and so if we, we can confine this to a discussion about the kind of the interior of the royal family but actually it's a kind of great big signal to the world that in fact there is a kind of revolution going on where the old ways of doing things do not necessarily make everybody happy and there are ways to break out of them I think that's such a good point and you know Harry is the end of the millennial spectrum he is a millennial but if you break it down as to being just a person as a boy, your mother is killed whilst being hunted by paparazzi and you're traumatised. As a teen, you openly rebel. Uh, you don't do that well at school. You struggle with drugs and alcohol. In your 20s, uh, you know, we all know those years were pretty wild, but he was pretty lost. You know, two failed relationships, his tour of Afghan ruined by a leak to the media. In the 30s, he himself admits he finally started to face up to the problems he had with mental health. He finds a woman that he loves uh, and that is treated in the same way with history repeating itself as his mother. Would no sane person think... I've got to escape. I can escape with her. This is a life I never asked for and obviously one I'm not enjoying. So if, as you know, there's three kings waiting in the wings and you're an additional prince, why wouldn't you think, let's go? Mm. My only caveat to that is, you know, a friend points out to me this morning when we were talking about it, she's, you know, got two babies and she said, the first year after having a child, I would not 
think it wise to make any serious life decisions mm. because your mind is crazy. And I think mm. that's what some people are saying is that maybe they should have waited it out this year to see if things turned around, to see if with all the Andrew stuff they would be given more of a fair hearing. Uh, and this maybe comes across as being impetuous. But I think they feel like because it leaked to the Sun newspaper yesterday that maybe that was an attempt to try and block this from happening because there would have been blowback in the reaction and all the things that now need to be worked out would have been played out in the papers and it would never have happened. So they felt that they they had to do this now, otherwise they could never have escaped. Hmm. Vincent McAvenny and Joy Ladico, thank you both. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about the biggest menswear fashion event of the year. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Daniel Bates. We'll finish things in Italy, where men's fashion is center stage in the beautiful city of Florence this week. Pity Omo is one of the industry's most prestigious events. Our team over there sent us this dispatch. Inside a Florence palazzo on the opening day of Pitti Uomo on Tuesday, models strolled about in some remarkably nice gardening clothes. They wore stone-colored overalls with tangerine bucket hats. Their forest-green rubber-gloved hands gripped trowels and cicatures. It was one of the most covetable collections we've seen so far this menswear season. We're currently in Florence for Pitti Uomo, but Milan and Paris come next. Who was behind it? Fiskars, yes. They of the orange-handled scissors. The Finnish tool company, which has sold one billion pairs of its signature snippers since 1967, has recruited young Finnish designer Maria Korkela to create a workwear collection. It's an excellent branding exercise. The collection, which is unisex and uses recycled materials and vegan leather, enables Fiskars to broaden its remit. To engage with the fashion industry and get onto the radars of a cooler, design-conscious audience. It's generally recognized that brands today, all brands, not just fashion brands, resonate best with customers when they inspire and intrigue. When, rather than merely peddling a single product, they build a universe for consumers to inhabit. One standout example is the Japanese outdoor brand Snowpeak, which makes great clothes and deck chairs, but also stages camping festivals and hosts 10 building workshops in its stores. There's a lot for consumers to engage with. The Fiskars collection is the latest example of how to successfully push a brand outside its comfort zone. But a word of caution, any move needs to make sense for that brand. If it seems random or inauthentic, customers will smell a rat. For Fiskars, which has long made gardening tools, the groundskeeping gear is a natural, albeit bold, move. And it looks so good, it's enough to make anyone want to get out and trim the hedges. My thanks to our team at Pitti Uomo in Florence. And that's all for today's show. Monaco's House View produced by Tom Hall, our studio managers, Steph Chungu and Louis Allen. Coming up at 20 hundred hours London time, a brand new edition of The Urbanist with host Andrew Tuck. Monaco's House View back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 here in London, 1300 in New York City. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>